Bible together, shall we? Let's look at the book of Romans once again and read some verses from chapter 4. Well done for me on getting here this morning. Mother's Day, sunshine outside, and the clock's going forward. All sorts of excuses for not being here, but brilliant that you are. And uh, I'm glad to be here too, because the last time I was supposed to be here, you just had a Jimmy John Allen on the screen behind you because I had COVID. So uh, it's nice to be here in person, and I promise I'm okay. <laughs> right, so let's read from Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? In fact, if, in fact, rather, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we've been saying that Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offering received, offspring uh, received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath, and where there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sign of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, and so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. 
Well, there's a lot to untangle there. Let me just remind you of, about the Book of Romans, where we actually are in it. We've said that the Book of Romans is in four bits, which we're looking at throughout this year. The first part is chapters one to four, and that runs from January to March, so we're just about at the end of that bit. This is the last part of it today. Then we'll be going on to 5 to 8, then to 9 to 11, then 12 to 16. So we can forget those bits for the moment. What we're focusing on today is the last part of this whole section on what Paul thinks the world's problem is and how God deals with that. And it's fairly complicated. Our in chapter 4, which we'll unpick, don't worry, it's easier than it looks, um, is important because it just brings us to the point where we're saying, well, okay, so if this is God's answer to the world's problem what does it actually mean in my life here and now? And that's where we'll be getting on to uh, next week. You remember we talked about chapter one and the way in which Paul talks about the slide downwards when the world turns its back on God. The situation we end up in, just without moorings, without a sat-nav, not knowing how we should steer ourselves through life, doing the wrong thing again and again, crashing and burning again and again and again and heading for God's judgment too. And in chapter two, he turns around and says, you Jews, you're looking a bit smug at the moment because you think, ah, yeah, but we're the people of God. We're okay. Well, you're not. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter where you belong. None of that will help you before God because everybody is a sinner. And so in chapter 3, he talks about sin. And he says sin is fatal. It kills us off. It spoils our relationship with God. And sin is not just bad things that you do. It's a disease that runs through your system. And when you have that disease, you cannot live right. You cannot please God. But the, 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 the fact is that everyone is in trouble because of this. We all have the disease. And as a result, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or circumcised, uncircumcised, whoever you are, you're still in that situation. The good news, though, in chapter 3, is that forgiveness is free. And God wants to forgive us, to let it off the hook. And we saw how it uses the word justified last time. Justified means to set straight like the margins on a, a piece of paper. You press the button and uh, they're straightened out for you. And we're justified by Jesus' death. He died to take the price that we would otherwise have had to pay for our own sins. Second, we're justified by grace. It wasn't something he had to do. It was the free gift of God. And third, we're justified by faith. That's the other phrase that he uses in chapter three. We get this whole thing just by believing. And in that way, God's justice which has to punish sin wherever it occurs. And God's mercy, which burns to forgive us and have us come back home, can both be satisfied in the cross and the resurrection. Death cannot hold its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bar away. Jesus, my Lord. And so by his triumphant death and resurrection, death and sin are defeated in our lives forever, and we can come to know him simply through faith. How do you get accepted? Paul says it's just through faith. That might seem too easy. Judy Murray, you might remember, is the uh, mother of Andy Murray. Uh, this is her on Strictly uh, a, a little while ago. And uh, she is a proud Scots lady. And uh, she was in London recently. And as a result of her experience in London, put this on Twitter. When you go to pay £9 for two donuts, yes, yeah, really, in London... And your £10 Bank of Scotland note is refused because we only take British ones. 
Well, I think any Scots lady that pays nine pounds for two donuts wants to be ashamed of herself. But anyhow, um, happens to you. It does happen to you. I have a wallet with, with and I've not got it this morning. Oh, I left it at home. But uh, I, which has got some very pretty notes in it. You English may have a better rugby team. Kevin Shirt is reminding us this morning. And you may have more branches of McDonald's than us, but the Scots are far superior. And one of the marks of that superiority is that we have far prettier five-pound notes. <laughs> Trouble is, as I have found since I was 18 and came down here to university, it's a lottery as to whether they're accepted in English or not. When I was a student, I used to argue about it and say, it's legal tender, you have to accept it. But often that wouldn't get you anywhere. And the English shopkeepers just don't like Scottish notes. Um, one reason is because the banks exist that when a shopkeeper sends some Scottish notes, they must be counted and uh, uh, enveloped separately because we don't want those Scottish notes contaminating real money. Uh, so it's, it's, it's all a bit difficult, and I understand that. Uh, but in fact, holding those notes, if you go into a shop in England, you just don't know if you're going to be accepted or not. And the Association of Commercial Banknote Issuers is no help whatsoever. So they just say the acceptability of any means of payment, including banknotes, is essentially a matter for agreement between the parties involved. You cannot know for sure that you're going to be all right until you get there. Are you going to be accepted? Are you not? No. Lots of people think it's like that in life, that you will never know until you reach the end of the trail whether God will accept you or reject you. That you just have to turn up in front of St. Peter or somebody at the gates of heaven with a great big book and he will count up one side and the other side of the ledge and say, okay, you can come in or else send you somewhere far less pleasant. Is that the way it works? Not according to the Bible. The Bible says there is only one way to be forgiven and that is through what Jesus did on the cross. And all you have to do to get it, says Paul in chapter 3, is come to him in faith. The gift of God is eternal life. You just have to take it from him. That sounds scary, doesn't it? And many of the Jews reading this would have said, well, okay, you gave us a bashing in chapter 2. But surely what we've got counts for something, doesn't it? And this faith thing, I mean, that's not how it worked with, with uh, our forefathers. They all said you had to keep the law in order to be approved by God. And uh, Paul says, okay, let's look at the ultimate test case. Let's look at Abraham the father of all the Jewish traditions, the man whom God called from Ur of the Chaldees to travel across, to build a family that would become a nation and the father of many nations. He's the one that all the Jews look back to and point to with pride. How did he get to be right with God? You see, by Paul's day, Jewish people were already starting to say, Abraham must have been really somebody quite special. He must have been moral. He must have been sensitive. He must have been ethically correct. He must have done all the right things to get himself accepted by God. You find, if you look at the Jewish writings, the commentaries of, of Paul's day and a little bit later about Abraham, they say all kind of nice things about Abraham. Our father Abraham observed the entire Torah before it was given to Israel, as it is written, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, Abraham was perfect in his observance of the law. Now, that's not what the Bible says, but that's what the Mishnah says, because it wants to big up Abraham a little bit. Uh, uh, another Jewish uh, scripture says, Whosoever has a benign eye, a simple heart, and a humble spirit, or who is humble and pious, is a disciple of Abraham. And he who lacks kindness of heart is no true son of Abraham. In other words, Abraham is the model. Put a little elastic uh, thingy on your wrist. It's uh, WWAD. What would Abraham do? And you'll be all right. 
And uh, Jews today would recognize that uh, it went a bit over the top, quite honestly. This is um, a, a site called myjewishlearning.com on the internet, and the article's headed Traditional Views of Jewish Jewishness. And the rabbi who writes this one is a lady, says, you know, um, uh, what the Jews were concerned to do at the time of Paul was to make the patriarchs pious. The rabbis of the Talmud and the Midrash were troubled by the random presentation of choice. God just picks people here and there, whoever they are. And there is one by ascribing unusual righteousness to those whom God chose. Thus, in rabbinic literature, God chooses Abraham only after Abraham has chosen God. And she says, the choice of Abraham, according to these traditions, is a response to Abraham's piety and not a unilateral and arbitrary choice on the, on the part of God. They were uncomfortable with the idea that God would pick people who were inferior or imperfect. So Abraham must have been wonderful. But that, as I say, is not what the Bible says. And uh, this rabbi recognizes that. The real Abraham, a few things about him that were not too brilliant. He lied about Sarah, for instance, in Genesis chapter 12, when somebody, uh, a powerful king, wanted to take her. He'd, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Yes, you can have her, please do that. I mean, if I tried that with my wife, I'd last about three minutes, I think, but still. Um, that, well, that was not a great thing to do. He questioned God's promise. Has God really said this? Will I really have a child? Here I am, aged, and my wife's aged too. There's no way we're heading for a maternity unit anytime soon. He slept with his, his servant, Hagar, although he knew he shouldn't have done. And uh, he lied about Sarah again. I mean, you try it twice. This time I'd last about 20 seconds with Anthea. But anyhow, um, all of these things were wrong about Abraham. But Paul doesn't need to point any of this out in chapter 4 because he's got two swift arguments that he does come up here with here to say, you know, Abraham was not justified because he was one of the good guys. No way. There are two reasons why that wouldn't be the case. First of all, logic. First, we know that God accepted Abraham freely as a gift. If Abraham earned his place by being good and keeping his nose clean, observing all the law and all the rest of it, it wasn't a gift. It was something God had to do because it was Abraham's <laughs> wages for being a good guy. But that wasn't the case. And God chose Abraham, sinner though he was, imperfect though he was, just because God and scripture, that's the other argument. What does the Bible actually tell us? And Paul quotes a verse, doesn't he? Which hits the nail on the head. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't do lots of good things that were credited to him. He just did one. He believed what God said. God said, leave your family, leave your home, go across to uh, a country that I'll show you and I'll just do amazing things with you. And Abraham was prepared to believe that and stake his life on what God was going to do. Tim Keller, the American pastor, has written a, a great book about Romans, and he calls this a real trust transfer. What it means to be a Christian, says Keller, is to put your entire life, your ambitions, your hopes, and everything else into the hands of God. You don't stand on your own achievements. You don't stand on your own abilities or your qualities. You simply stand on the fact that God has promised. And he says this, you can have lots and lots of strong faith that God exists, that he's loving, that he's holy. You can believe that the Bible is God's holy word. You can show great reverence for God. Yet, all the while, you can be seeking to be your own saviour and justifier by trusting in your own performance, in religion, in moral character, in vocation, in parenting. 
Don't trust in your own achievements. Don't trust in anything else. Simply say, God, without you, I am sunk. But I believe your promise, and on that basis, I'm going to live my life. And I believe I'll be accepted by you. Time after time after time after time, wherever I go, you will still accept me. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. So, Paul talks about Abraham and says, look, it was all by faith, wasn't it? That was the only thing that Abraham had going for him. But there's another hero who was very, very big, whom every Jewish kid had a poster of on his bedroom wall, and that was King David. And he said, what about David then? <laughs> what does David write about this whole thing? Now, David, as everybody knew, was a great king, but he was also a fairly unsavory character sometimes. You just read the Bible, you know he was guilty of adultery uh, with of somebody else's wife. He was guilty of murder by having a guy killed afterwards. He, was a, he showed blatant favoritism. He, one of his sons ran the apple of his eye, and he, of course, was the one who rebelled against him and all won the kingdom away from him. His inhumanity to women goes right through his life. He, the way he treated women was scandalous. Um, he, he was a terrible parent, and most of his kids ended up in trouble one way or another. Um, he uh, was guilty of injustice right at the, 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 the very end of his life. He was capable of doing the most horrible things and being very vengeful. Even as he lay dying, he said to Solomon, Now, so-and-so was my enemy, so-and-so crossed me, so-and-so has had it coming for years. I won't deal with them, but uh, it's your job, Solomon. And so right to the end of his life, he was settling scores with people in the most ungodly kind of a way. And uh, Paul says, well, if that was Abraham, uh, uh, or David, what does he say? Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And that's interesting, isn't it? David was a sinner again and again and again, but he was somebody who trusted in God's forgiveness. And he said, it's blessed when God is not going to count your transgressions against him uh, and, and, and they're just swept out of the balance. And he believed by faith he'd be forgiven in that way. Now, the Jews still aren't finished arguing, and they would say, yes, but what about circumcision? We've had this very painful operation, if we're male anyway, on the eighth day of our life, which makes us marked out as one of God's chosen people. And surely circumcision was something that God said Abraham had to do, and that was the mark that he was accepted by God. And uh, what Paul had to say is, is, is very simple, isn't it? What? Circumcision. God gave him the promises first. The circumcision bit didn't happen until two chapters after he received the promises. And so what happened in circumcision was not that Abraham became an inheritor of the promises. He already had that. What happened was that uh, circumcision became a sign and a seal of something that had already happened. A bit like marriage. You know, when you go to a wedding and two people say, I do to one another, that is not the first time they've met usually. There's a whole history of you know, boy going out with girl and girl going out with boy and misunderstandings and breaking up and getting together again. All the stuff that goes on before two people get to the point where they will say, I do for life. There's a whole prehistory and the wedding is just the sign and the seal of a relationship that's already formed and which is ready to go public in a lifelong way. It's the same thing with baptism. <laughs> this guy here in the picture is not becoming a Christian. <laughs> He's become a Christian already. And the baptism, when in a second they're going to, well, I think they've done it already, actually, his shirt's all wet, isn't it? You know, they've dipped him in the water, all over, that's just been a sign of something that has already happened beforehand. 
It's not, down you go, you're a pagan. Oh, come up, you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. It's not magic. What happens is that baptism is an outward sign of something that's happened inside before you can actually be baptized. And so Paul says circumcision works in that way as well. And this means three things, he says. First of all, it means Abraham is the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. You've probably played that party game that goes, Father Abraham has many sons. Well, yep, that's right. Anybody who's accepted by God is a son of Abraham. Because Abraham was uncircumcised when he got the promises. So he's the father of the uncircumcised who come to God that way. Then he got circumcised. So he's the father of the circumcised people as well. And so whether you're Jewish or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, you still belong as a child of Abraham and an inheritor of those promises. Second, it means that faith isn't worthless. <laughs> if it all depended on the law, keeping the law, keeping your nose clean, then what would be the point in having faith? You'd have this little document from God that said, if you keep these laws, I will let you into heaven. And that would be what you were depending on. As it is, you're depending on God's grace and God's mercy because you have no right, sinner that you are, ever to be accepted by him. Faith would be useless, worthless, says Paul, if it were not uh, for the fact that through Jesus it works. And it's got nothing to do with law. And the third thing is it means the promises are guaranteed for all of us. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, his death was the guarantee that you and I are being accepted by God. There is no way we will not be accepted again. And Paul says, we believe in Jesus who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What does that actually mean? Well, that little word for dia in Greek really means on account of. So Jesus was delivered over to death on account of our sins. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? Because we have sinned, because we've broken God's law, because we have this disease running through our veins. On account of that, Jesus was delivered to death. And there he paid the price. And three days later, he rose again. He was raised to life on account of our justification. What does that mean? It means Jesus was raised to life because our justification was now complete. If there had been one sin unforgiven, if there had been one person whose condition had not been dealt with, Jesus would still have been in the grave. But because our justification was complete, because death was defeated, because sin had no more power, Jesus could rise again in triumph. Our justification is complete, and that's guaranteed by the fact that Jesus Christ is alive this morning. And it was him coming back to life that showed it had really happened. And so to all, we can all be sure that we're accepted by God on that kind of a basis. And so in the last part of the chapter, he goes on to talk about faith. Before we get there, let me just tell you something that happened to me two weeks ago. Because two weeks ago, after having recovered from COVID, I had to go off to Spain to teach in a Bible school there. And actually, that's, that's one of the easier places to get to from Exeter. If you go to some of the other places to go to, you've got to get a bus and then a, a plane and then a train and then another bus. And then you're you're travelling all day. Spain is dead easy. 
you just have to go to Exeter Export, and my wife doesn't charge much to take me there. So uh, I got there, uh, get on a plane, expat special, late evening down to Alicante, no problem. There at Alicante, the guy's waiting for me, whipped off in the car, and you're there. Nice, easy time. So I got down to Alicante with no problem whatsoever and thought, I'll just ring home and tell Auntie I've got here. And I went and switched the phone on and said, eh, you've run out of credit. You need to add some credit, ring this number. I said, okay, I'll ring this number. Rang the number and it said, um, <clears throat> your transaction has been declined. Said, what? What's going on here? I've got at least 38p in the bank. <laughs> and uh, then I got a message from the bank saying, um, suspicious activity on your card, so we've stopped it. <laughs> what do I do now? Uh, ring us back if you want to talk about this. I can't ring you back because I've got no credit on the phone. <laughs> so I was absolutely stuck. And what I had to do the next day was uh, persuade Andres in, in the Bible school office to let me use the phone to ring that West in London. At which point I was asked all sorts of curious questions. Andres actually said, oh, if you need money in a hurry, I'll, I'll, I can soon lend you some. And uh, I thought, this is great because at least I'm in a place where a temporary top-up is possible. You know, if I was there on holiday on my own in a flat or something like that, what would I be doing at this point? But uh, I had friends who could get a temporary top-up. But I did not want a temporary top-up. I wanted permanent, unbroken access to my 38p. So I rang the bank, answered all sorts of questions, and in the end, the guy said, okay, that's it. I said, what do you mean, that's it? Yeah, it's, it's clear again. It's okay, you can use it now. Really? Last time you did that to me, it took three days. No, 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 it's, it's fine, it's okay, you can use it. So I remember going across the road to the Mercadona supermarket, thinking, this could be very embarrassing. <laughs> and I bought something just, just to check out that it actually worked, and put my card into the machine, and oh dear, I've never been so relieved in my life as when all four little lights flashed, and it was, yes, your card has been accepted, you're through, you're all right. And that's the way it works, isn't it? Just by faith just by believing. Too simple for an awful lot of people. God has forgiven you. All you have to do is accept it. What? Can't be that simple. And uh, just to hear a man on the phone say, yeah, 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 you're all right, you're okay, you can use it now. I hardly knew whether to believe it. But by trying it out, I found it. And I didn't have temporary access, I had permanent access. Now that's the whole thing you see about the Jews, the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had temporary forgiveness from God. There were sacrifices. There was a temple. There was a whole system which meant that you could go every year on the Day of Atonement and have your hands wiped out so you could start again. But then you'd need to come back the next year and the next year and the next year as long as you lived. It was only temporary access. And what God says is because of Jesus, your car's wiped clean. You're forgiven. You're free. So Paul talks in the last bit of the chapter about what faith actually means. We can now see, he says, what faith is really about. I think there are four things he says. I'll whip through them very, very quickly indeed. The first thing is, faith means trusting when you can't see. Faith means believing in someone who died for you 2,000 years ago, somebody you've never clapped eyes on, somebody who died in a country that most of us have never visited, but death somehow makes you right with God right now. Trusting when you can't see. That's what faith is all about. Martin Luther King once said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And you don't need to understand totally how it works. Paul has a lot more to say about that. But all you need to understand is that there are God who loves you and wants to forgive you and make you right with himself and give you a new life. 
Faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Second thing is faith means taking a risk on God's reliability. Taking the risks that you can actually trust this God who's invited you into a relationship with himself. One of the things I was lecturing about in Spain was church history, which I love doing because it's a great excuse just to tell stories all morning. And there's some fantastic stories. Ever here ever heard of Bartholomew Ziegenbalk? Nope. How about Heinrich Plutschall? Oh, they are heroes. They really are, although nobody much has heard about them. This is um, the Danish fort in Trankabar in the south of India. The Danes had set up a colony there in the 18th century. They were hoping to get to Sri Lanka, but the British and the French said push off. So the best they could do was the tip of India. And they had a tiny little colony called Trankabar on the southeast coast of India. And the Danish king wanted Christian missionaries to go and uh, do something for the people there. And he got to hold of the University of Halle in Germany, which was training young people for mission, and said, have you got anybody who would like to go to the trunk bar? And two young people volunteered. Bartholomew Ziegenbalk, aged 23, that's what he looked like, and Heinrich Plutschau, who's so famous I couldn't even find a picture of him. 123, 129. They'd never been anywhere like this before. They didn't know what Trankibar was like. They didn't speak the language. They had no money. When they arrived in Trankibar, they found that the king had forgotten to tell the Danish administration that they were coming, so they weren't best popular. <laughs> the people in the fort said, missionaries, the last thing we need is missionaries. They're going to get the natives all uppity and persuade them that they're real human beings. They'll stop us ripping them off. No way, we don't want missionaries here. And they didn't speak the language. And so Ziegenbart and Plutschau, who were... were, were Eminent scholars had great university training. Do you know what they did? They went to a little village school that they found and sat in the sand with the village children who were all about five or six or something like that and did the same thing that they did. They traced out their letters to Tamil in the sand until they'd learned the Tamil alphabet and gradually, painfully learned to write in that language and two other Indian languages too. Nine years down the line, Ziegenbalk put out a Tamil translation of the New Testament. It's probably the worst translation ever made in the world's history. But he got there, and people started getting interested. And soon after that, somebody got converted to Christianity. And he just turned out to be the greatest Tamil poet of his generation. So he made that translation an awful lot better. And he went around the villages in the whole area, just singing about Jesus, these songs that he'd written himself. And uh, a church burst into life through Ziegenbalk's work. And uh, those names, Ziegenbalk and Plutschau, are completely forgotten nowadays. But in Trankibar, they are hailed as the great heroes who brought something fantastic to that area that had never been there before. And they were going to an area where they had no connections, no ability to speak, no money, no friends. And they did it simply because they were convinced that God had sent them there. And God showed that when you step out on him in faith, believing his promises, he keeps those promises. The third thing, faith means committing yourself, not just assenting mentally. You might think, yes, it's all right, I believe it, God can forgive me, God can accept me. But you've got to commit yourself to it. This is going to embarrass Anthea probably, but this is the hotel where we had our honeymoon. We decided when we got married we were going to do something original, um, there weren't many options. We were getting married at the end of January, and, you know, Cornwall in February didn't sound like a great idea. So we decided to go to Paris. And we found you could get a really cheap deal uh, at this place, the Hôtel des Grands Balcons, the hotel with the grey balconies. 
And it's right in the center of Paris, the little building you can see on the right-hand side there is the Paris Opéra, so it's in a very fashionable area. And when we got there, we thought, well, how come we get to stay here for as little money as we've paid? You walk into the, 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 the uh, uh, downstairs and there, there's a big uh, reception desk that's been there since the 19th century and we could see at the back uh, this spiral staircase going up, red carpet. We thought, what a place. We actually found that later it was a very, very cheap hotel indeed um, and that when you went up the spiral staircase, as soon as you're around the first uh, turn, the uh, red carpet ran out and it was bare boards for another five floors until you reached your room. So it was quite a, quite a deal in the end, and uh, we were certainly not hobnobbing with the wealthy. It's a much better hotel nowadays, by the way. I looked at the price the other night, and there's no way I could afford to stay there now. But anyway, we did that 40-odd years ago, and it was great. We, we had a fantastic time, about which I will not tell you. But uh, the interesting thing was, in the middle of the first night, my wife decided she wanted to go to the toilet. And so she got up, and of course, being a cheap hotel, they switched all the lights out, and she felt her way along the corridor to where the toilet was. No en suite in those days, nah. And she got to the, the, the bathroom, opened the door, felt for the light switch. No light switch. So she thought, well, I'm not going in here. There might be some evil-minded Frenchman lurking behind the loo pedestal, ready to grab me. So, so she came back to the room and said, my brave, strong, new husband will know what to do about this. John, John, John. And I said, uh, uh. She said, Dad, there's no light in the bathroom. Fantastic, good night. And, and she thought, well, I'm not going to change out of him. So she waited till the morning and told me about it. Women, she can't find the switch. I'll go and find it. So I went along to the toilet. No switch. This is weird. And it wasn't until, I think, the following night that we found out what was going on. Typical cunning French trick. When you went into the toilet, there was no light switch. But when you put the lock across, it broke a photoelectric beam. And as if by magic, the light came on. It was a cheaper hotel's way of saving money. And uh, uh, as soon as we found that, we were all right. But, you know, it meant that going to the toilet was taking a risk, wasn't it? Because the light might be, be broken. There might be an evil-minded Frenchman lurking in there who'd undergrew the light. You, you know, you're taking a chance. But what you had to do was go into the toilet and commit yourself to the toilet. And then the light came on. You see what I'm saying? Bizarre illustration, but it's, just, it, it's what happens, isn't it? Faith means commitment. It means saying, I'm locked into this. Whatever happens, I'm going your way. And then the light comes on, and you know it's all true. So faith means committing yourself, not just assenting. And fourth, faith means doing something about it. It means that you actually take action. You do something. I don't know if God's calling some of us here to something that we feel challenged by, and we don't feel quite ready to do yet. Do you know, if you want Jesus to do miracles in your life, you have to do what he says. Do you remember the first ever miracle that Jesus performed? That was at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. The wedding, uh, the, the miracle, changing water into wine, only happened when his mother had a word with the servants at the feast. And what she said to them in John chapter 2, verse 5 was this. Whatever he says to you, and that's the challenge, isn't it? Faith is the only way to God. But doing something about it is the only way to faith. Let's just pray for a second, shall we? So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenge of Romans chapter 4. The challenge just to simply believe, to rely on you rather than ourselves. It goes against human nature. We want to do something for ourselves. 
It's like people who can't swim being thrown into a swimming pool. We, we struggle and we splash about and we try to keep ourselves up and help us to realize we just have to commit ourselves to a force greater than ourselves who can help us in that situation. Abraham and David were fairly imperfect people, just as we are. Help us to rely on what they relied on, which is simply the power of God and the love of God that wants to bring us back into access to him. Help us trust your mercy. And help us, once we start trusting your mercy, to continue to trust it and to walk in faith with you every day of our life. We ask these things for all of us, for your name's sake. Amen.